conversation with Adila Fortune. 14 after 3 in the PM as always thought-provoking heart and topics that's never dealt with as part of the program. We're talking anxiety disorder. My psychologist, Mr. Gregory Eccles. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Fabulous, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Okay, so, you know, a moment ago I was telling you that I don't think, well, I think there's very few people that is not anxious. I think we're living in crazy times. One of my listeners just a short moment ago phoned and he said, you know, um, we can't stop at robots. We constantly looking to our right, looking to our left. We're anxious all the time. Yeah. I think a certain amount of anxiety is a a healthy response. Sometimes, like, like looking at the robots, there's nothing wrong with being a little wary, especially depending on the area you're in. It makes sense to have some anxiety about some things, but obviously there's limits to how much of that is healthy. Okay, when you cross that limit, what are some of the things you, for you as a loved one to look out for if you're suspecting that this person is perhaps just a little bit too anxious? Um, I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of symptoms that people would recognize very easily in terms of anxiety. And I think maybe what people are used to seeing, things like um, maybe you might get a little bit sweaty or you might be a little short of breath or um, some people have slight tremors or they're feeling very agitated all the time or they have a dry mouth. There's a lot of symptoms that I think most people can recognize quite easily to say, look, this person looks, we we'll often call it stress. Mm. Uh, stressed or anxious but maybe when we're looking out for someone that we're worried about the the point at which we might start to wonder if there's something problematic is if it seems in excess to either the particular situation it's in or to the likelihood of what they're worrying about so you know when you're driving up to that corner on the street if you're in a dodgy area you might you're not really going to think that there's something wrong with your friend if they start sort of glancing left and right at the dodgy street corner. Or just zooming past the, you know, the stop if, street. If they're walking mm. in the middle of a bank and they're glancing around going, oh my goodness, is someone going to come? Mm. You might start to wonder, you know, this seems a little inappropriate. Okay, so let's take a closer look at the main feature. Of, You've mentioned um, the trembling, the tension, the headaches, the sweating. What would be the yeah. main feature? Um, that varies completely from person right. to person. So there's no two people are going to show it in exactly the same way. So some people might have the very physical symptoms that I've been mm-hmm. talking about so far. Other people, it might be more of a cognitive or a mental thing. So, for example, students will often start to blank out the closer they get to test. You know, mm-hmm. the, the thoughts that they were desperately hanging on to to remember suddenly seem to disappear and go out of mind. And that's another more cognitive symptom that can appear. Um, There's no way that we can blanket term the symptoms of anxiety to everybody because everybody processes it and shows it very differently. Mm -hmm. I think a key aspect of underpinning worries, that intolerance of uncertainty, you know? Mm, So you get down to become really, really anxious. Yeah, and often it's they're worried about something that might happen. You know, it's a, anxiety is a future-oriented thing, that it's not usually something that's happening right now. It's more that I'm worried that if Tomorrow. such and such happen, this will happen in the future. Mm. Okay, so it's really people that's 
In a nutshell, they're unable to relax or fall asleep or just calm down or just have a moment. Uh, and I'm going to try and refrain from using the word a moment of sanity, but really just that time to chill, to let go, yeah. to yeah. relax. Yeah, well, the people who can't get to that point, then we would start to say, okay, well, maybe this isn't just a little bit of anxiety. Maybe this is some sort of anxiety disorder. Right. It's so bad that they can't even relax. Mm. Okay, Doc, uh, are you comfortable yeah. with me opening the lines? Yeah, of course. Sure. Die lijn is op onmiddellik 021-442-3530. As jy baie angstig, are you anxious all the time? Do you think, taking a look at your loved one, this could possibly be a disorder? That it's really gone to the extreme, that it's rarig erg. Yes, meer is welkom te skakel. Jy kan anoniem blij, you pretty much know the drill. Stay connected via WhatsApp 0722-38712. Stira SMS 47913. Of jy kan ons skakel 4423530. My guest on the line, psychologist Gregory Eccles. Ons gaan nou na voort. In conversation with Adila Fortune. Listen to this part of the show. We're talking anxiety disorder which is an excessive tension and worry about everyday life events. So people with anxiety disorder often seem unable to relax or fall asleep, and they may experience, like Gregory Eccles mentioned a moment ago, the lightheadedness, the shortness of breath, the nausea, the trembling, the muscle tension, the headaches. There's a pretty long list, all right? So let's welcome back my guest online, psychologist Gregory Eccles. Welcome back, Gregory Thank you. Okay, so on to the first question that came through. Um, the listener is saying, whenever I go for an interview, my hands become really very sweaty. Is this possibly a disorder? Okay. Um, I think in this case, what we can, the way we can differentiate between normal anxiety and what we've been talking about, a generalized anxiety disorder, this is very situation-specific that they're talking about. So in that sense, I wouldn't classify it under something like a generalized anxiety disorder unless they were to say, okay, well, look, the, the anxiety problems are not only there. You know, if they said, well, it happens at school as well, and it happens in this place and that place, and if they were uh, the, the, the larger the variety of situations there were, the more likely I'd be to start considering a diagnosis like generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's not problematic on its own as well. And okay. I think for that person to actually have written in to say, look, this is troubling me. You know, everybody has a little bit of anxiety when they're faced with that sort of situation. But I think we're our own best judges for that sort of thing if the anxiety feels excessive to that situation. So to my mind, just the idea of my hand sweating for an interview, uh-huh. I would think is a fairly normal symptom for that sort of situation. But perhaps for that person, it's beyond beyond what your average person would experience in the same place. Okay, the next listener is saying, I worry about everything. I've tried therapy, I've tried massages, I now only fall asleep at about two in the morning, which leaves me tired, drained and fatigued. Okay, well, that one, we're definitely getting closer to the idea of generalized anxiety disorder. I think in specific, they spoke about the sleep disturbance, Mm -hmm. and then that's also contributing to being easily fatigued. Um, um, And in that sort of case, I would think 
Obviously, as a psychologist, I'm a little biased, so I do believe that right. therapy is one of the best options available. You know, other, a psychiatrist, for example, might go for other options potentially, but I think in terms of therapy, just because it hasn't worked once in the past for that particular person doesn't mean it's not still an option. It might have been the wrong psychologist. It might have been the wrong type of therapy. It might have been the wrong time for that person to go. There could be a lot of factors contributing. So I definitely recommend to someone like that to maybe do a little research, you know, find out from friends and family if there's any psychologist they might recommend and mm-hmm. look, look back into the option because I think there's... There's a lot that a, a competent psychologist can do for someone in that sort of situation. I'm also, you know, thinking about increasing the tolerance levels. So from a psychological perspective, perhaps share with the listeners, Gregory, what exactly does it involve in terms of the treatment? Um, well, that can vary a lot. Um, the in among psychologists, there's a lot of different approaches to therapy work. So, for example, one of the approaches that I would use often is a type of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. And basically, the idea of that is um, we look at the situation to find out what sort of beliefs that person might have unconsciously that are affecting their behavior. So, if I can give you a quick example, um, if we had two people who were in an identical car accident, and everything about the two people is completely identical and everything about the accident is the same and one person comes out of the accident saying oh my goodness i'm never going to go near a car again these roads are scary places i could never go near that ever again and the other person comes out the other side saying well that was sucky i hope that doesn't happen again and carries on with their life Mm -hmm. and in that sort of situation we would say well clearly it's not the situation itself that made the person anxious afterwards. It's their beliefs about the situation. So the person who had the extreme reaction might have a belief around the idea of, you know, I should never be in a car accident or the world has to be a safe place for me. And the moment that belief is, is, is questioned by something that happens, then it spikes extreme anxiety in that person. So in therapy, we try to look for thoughts of that sort of nature, sort of demanding absolutist thoughts about how the world should be or how other people should be right. and question them to see, you know, maybe maybe demanding those sorts of things is not really all that useful. And the, the only useful or the only effect that it's giving is creating extreme negative reactions like anxiety in that person. Mm. So if we could change that belief to something more useful to say, for example, I'd like the world to be a safe place. So I'm going to do whatever I can to keep it as safe for myself as possible. But I can accept that, you know, if something goes wrong, that's not the end of the world. I can, I'll do my best to handle it. You know, right. already then it's a much more functional and much more helpful type of belief. Change the mindset. Absolutely. Okay, I want to get back to the different approaches. Just on to the next one. Can immobilizing pain, like feelings of a pressing wind under the left breast area, be anxiety related? Um, there are definitely instances of, of very somatic experiences, very bodily experiences of emotions, and definitely anxiety could be one of them. I'm, as, because I'm not a medical doctor, I would also caution that you know, if, there's, if there are extreme physical reactions of that nature, it might not be a bad idea to get that checked out by a medical professional as well. Um, but in terms of anxiety itself, it absolutely can have all sorts of very physical outlets. Um, oftentimes, the body 
might try to express things that the mind is not all that comfortable expressing. So something like extreme anxiety, instead of the person being caught up in thoughts about it all the time, if they manage to repress those thoughts as much as possible, the body kind of says, no, there's still a problem here. We need, we need, we need the brain to recognize what's going on so mm-hmm. the body finds another way to express it. Yeah, and that is why you have the the muscle tension, the sweating, yeah. the shortness of breath, because, you know, the body's yeah. screaming, please help. <laughs> okay. Yeah, look here, notice. Uh-huh. Yeah. My son has schizophrenia, always agitated. What can we do? Now there we're going into slightly more um, pathological things, and I think it's very important there to consult with the appropriate professional. I think in terms of anxiety, there's a lot that I can say, say on air to, to people who are experiencing symptoms of anxiety, but something as, as serious as schizophrenia definitely needs proper professional help. So I think the most important thing there would be to speak to a psychiatrist or a psychologist that could then deal with that person directly. Can it be hereditary or neurologically related as well? Absolutely, yes. I think there's, there's all sorts of possible roots of the symptoms and it, it's not something that, that anyone could diagnose off of a, a message or a phone call, unfortunately. Can a twitch under the right eye be a symptom? Again, yes. It's another possible somatic symptom. I think we could, we could go through lists of physical symptoms that it could be, but I think something like a twitch under the right eye might be a symptom, but I very much doubt that would be an isolated symptom. You know, if somebody has extreme anxiety, it's not likely that that's going to be the only thing that's going on with them. So, you know, again, if it was just that, I would question whether that anxiety feeding into that. I'm sure there would be, there would likely be likely to be other symptoms that would be visible. True. I've got to tell you, and I've got to share this with my listeners, I attended um, an ADHD workshop because I've got two kids that's been diagnosed with ADHD. So I'm always looking at, um, you know, different workshops, different approaches. And the one thing, just to the listener that posed the question about the twitch under the right eye, they were talking about the different groups of the ADHD, right, as you know. So one of the the things that came up that, um, you know, if you look at the person with ADHD, that sometimes is one of the things that's evident, you know. So just to tell that listener, there's a pretty long list of reasons why there could be that twitch. It could be because they're anxious. It could be, uh, it could be zillions of reasons, really. Mm. Mm. I, I think that's really important. A, mm. a symptom on its own is never a, a direct indicator of something. You're usually looking Absolutely for a cluster of not. To True. To and I wish we had more time to actually go into it because we've only got about six minutes left to roll. So let's quickly move on to the next one. I know this is a wonderful program, guys, and I think one can also say welcome to SA. <laughs> so uh, that one goes out to you, Doc. All right. I just because we've got five minutes left of the program, I very quickly want to end off with the different approaches, right? So okay. the platform is all yours, Gregory. Different approaches in terms of what ordinary people can do? Yep. Okay. Um, in that sense, I think there are masses of different types of relaxation exercises out there that can be incredibly beneficial. I'm definitely a strong proponent of approaches along the lines of yoga and meditation and mindfulness approaches. Uh-huh. I think what's really useful about them is that, like we were saying earlier, you know, anxiety is such a future 
future-facing sort of problem. Mm. And mindfulness exercises, the, the, one of the major strengths of them is bringing people out of that mindset of always worrying about the future and looking at what's happening in the present, you know, moving their concentration away from one time frame to the present time frame. And that can really do wonders in terms of both both helping the physical symptoms, so for people who have the, the muscle tension or the difficulty sleeping or concentrating, um, it can really be useful to relieve the symptoms in the immediate time frame to help them right then, but also long-term benefits in terms of being able to cope with high anxiety situations better in the future. Um, so yes, I'm definitely a major proponent of that. And mm-hmm. obviously, again, my bias as a psychologist, therapy, I think, is a wonderful option. But of course, it's not accessible to everybody. In some cases, um, psychiatrists might also want to recommend the prescription of certain types of anti-anxiety medications. All right. I'm not a giant fan of them. I think there there are times that they're appropriate, but I think they're, for me at least as a professional, they're one of the last resorts that I would say, okay, right. a lot of other things are not helping. Maybe this individual can see a psychiatrist to get a prescription for something of that sort. Um, I also think, then, you know, yeah, um, sorry. sorry, if there's no intervention forthcoming, I mean, this could lead to the person becoming really very violent, you know. They're anxious, they're agitated, they're stressed out. So sometimes you see that happening, huh? I think that's an absolute minority. I don't think, you know, if you know someone who's a, who has anxiety problems, don't automatically start thinking, oh my goodness, they're going to turn violent. I think right. that might be the case in a very small amount of people. But on the whole, agitation is not usually... A, a sole contributor, at least, to, to any acts of violence. Right. Acting in a violent way takes a lot more than just anxiety. So it's, you know, it's something to consider, but I would definitely caution against connecting the idea of anxiety and violence so directly. Okay. On to the next one. Um, how do I help myself from fear? I had a very bad experience and cannot seem to get over the fear. Um. I think in terms of fear sort of situations like that, the, the professional approach would often be a process that we, we gradually bring that person, uh, we expose that person to, for example, something symbolic of the incident that happened. And we start with, we start with very minor things that are very distantly symbolic of the situation itself and work up gradually towards more and more strong representations of the the thing that they fear. Um, it's not necessarily a process I'd recommend someone to try on their own because a lot can go wrong if you just sort of throw the scary thing in front of the person's right. face and say, look at this now. You know, it, it <laughs> needs a very careful approach. Yeah. But in terms of what you can do individually, you know, I, I think you can start with very small things. So, for example, if someone was in that car accident and now they're absolutely fearful of cars, something that they could do on a, a daily basis might be to, you know, look at pictures of cars, for example, or talk about cars with somebody or read articles about cars, or, you know, something, something along that lines which is absolutely non-threatening on its own but can start to build that person towards later on perhaps being more tolerant of it because of increased exposure to it. Listeners, I've got to apologize. We've only got 60 seconds left of the show. <laughs> so, and, and this is what normally happens. Always time constraints, never enough time. Um, I just want to add 
on dark. She's saying that a fear is mainly about death. Okay. Um, hmm. That's quite a, 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 an existential fear, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people have a fear of mortality. And I think that's something that at least you can deal with philosophically. You know, that's something to right. explore your beliefs in. And if you're religious, to explore the religious side of it as well. And otherwise, just to spend time thinking about it and talking about it and reading about it. And, you know, obviously that one, we're not going to be exposing them to a lot in that line. But I think the more time that you can spend considering the option and considering your beliefs around it, the more likely it is that that fear is going to dissipate. Greg, I wish we had more time, but it's been um, awesome chatting to you. Fantastic program. Thank you so much and God bless. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's psychologist Gregory Eccles.